Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. We serve a God who is a God of transformation. A God who doesn't, who's not satisfied to leave people where he finds them, but a God who transforms people. This is, we see him work this way through the scriptures, and if we have walked with him for any length of time, even if we came to faith in him today, we would recognize the fact that he is a God of transformation. Now, I'm not going to bore you too much with my story, for certainly I've repeated it over and over again for the last six and a half years that I've been with you. But I want to remind you of the fact that, you know, coming to faith at 16 years old, I had 16 years of active rebellion against the Lord. I had 16 years to develop a worldview and develop a a personality, an attitude uh, that was not good toward God or toward others. In fact, I remember moving to New York in the seventh grade and wanting to uh, put on a tough facade so that I wouldn't get picked on because in the town that I grew up in in New York, you were either the bully or the one who was bullied. And I didn't want to be the one that was bullied. And so I remember getting into fights that I started in the middle of the lunchroom. I remember when kids would pick on my brother and so I would go after them. I was the kid who took somebody's band instrument and threw it in the middle of a busy road and then punched him in the face. And I know you're probably looking at me and saying that can't possibly be true. And I'm thankful that you think that. And it's not because of me, but it's because I came to know the Lord who is the Lord of transformation. And I am no longer that person who would do those things. I'm no longer the person who did do those things. God has and continues to transform. I remember in senior year, the yearbook was coming up with who were going to be the superlatives, those people who were, you know, um, you know, most popular, most likely to succeed, most changed. Raise your hand if you were a superlative. Is anybody here a superlative? Wow, all right. Look at you. I didn't make it. I thought I would have. I really did. In fact, several of my friends senior year came up to me and said, Kevin, if you don't get most changed, I have absolutely no idea what's wrong with these people on the yearbook committee. And it's funny because the yearbook was coming out and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I still have a little bit of pride in me. I wanted to see it. Uh, not for my glory, but for God's glory, because I know why I was most changed. Because the Lord had transformed my life. I was no longer the one I was before. And so these people who I'm going to school with, who knew me before and after giving my life to Christ, saw a marked difference. And I would love to have been on the page of the yearbook to be able to say, look what God did. Because of him, I'm the most changed. I didn't get to be the superlative. Somebody else, a man by the name of Andy Estrella, uh, got to be the superlative for most changed. But you know what? As much as uh, I was a little bit bummed about it, I couldn't be too bummed. Do you know why? Because Andy Estrella had the same story as me. In fact, Andy Estrella was one of those boys that I got into fights with in high school. We would go right at it in the hallway outside of shop class. And yet here we are, senior year of high school, and both of us had given our lives to the Lord and had been profoundly changed in amazing ways. And in the same way that my friends, the people who knew me, saw that in my life, they saw it in Andy's life too. And so praise God, God got glory on the page of the 1998 Copeg High School yearbook as most 
changed because we serve a God who is a God of transformation. And encountering Jesus is transformational. And certainly we see that in the Apostle Paul and his life. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, start turning over to Acts chapter 9. I want to recap for you. Before the Easter season, we were taking a look. We were walking through the book of Acts. We got to Acts chapter 9 and we saw Paul's uh, amazing encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. Let me just remind you. Uh, so here, Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, a leader among the Jews, uh, who was present at the stoning of Stephen, and now he is leading the charge of this persecution against these Christians. He didn't do it because he was a particularly mean or evil guy, although what he was doing was particularly mean and evil, but he saw the Christians as a heresy, as this growing threat against Judaism, against Israel, and an affront to the God of Israel. And so he made it his mission, like so many zealous people before him in Israel's history, to stand up for God and to purge Israel of this threat that might lead them astray and call down God's judgment on Israel. And so he unleashed a persecution in Jerusalem first. And so as we read through that text, we saw that uh, many were arrested, men and women dragged out of their homes, put into prison. Many others fled, leaving behind their homes, their, their jobs, their communities, uh, and going off to live somewhere else where persecution had not yet reached. And now Paul was moving beyond Jerusalem. He was now going, he got permission from the chief priests, and he was going city by city, and he was going to go round up the Christians, those Jewish people who had given their faith to Jesus as Messiah. And so he was headed to a city called Damascus, and as he was going along the road, Jesus visited him. Yes, the same Jesus who died, who rose again, who ascended to the Father, appeared to him on the road to Damascus. In fact, Paul refers back often. In speeches we'll see later in the book of Acts. In letters he wrote to churches as the apostle to the Gentiles. And over and over again he points back to his defining moment. His encounter with Jesus that completely transformed him. That turned him from a zealot that was fighting against this Christian movement to the recognition that he was wrong and Jesus was in fact the long-awaited Messiah of Israel and he became a wonderful proponent of Christ. And so we're going to read a little more of his story here today. If you have Aaron, Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 17. Here's what it says. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man? Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. What an amazing and profound story of transformation. Encountering Jesus brings transformation, and certainly we see that in Paul's story. Paul, at least in this, where we're looking here today, in this transitional moment as we see who he was before and who he is now, we see that he is now caught in two, between two different worlds. And again, these two different worlds hinged on who he used to be and who he had become. Perhaps you can relate to this. Uh, if perhaps you didn't grow up in a Christian home but came to, came to Christ later in life, or if you walked away from the Lord for a, a season of time and you were distant from him and then you returned, or if you were old enough when you came to faith in Christ that you remember the before and after in your life. And clearly, as you heard from my testimony earlier, there is a distinct difference. There's two worlds, one before Christ and one after. And so perhaps some of you, if not all of you, have some kind of experience like that. Again, my, my experience was very different even from my boy's experience. I've got two sons, both of whom profess Christ, praise the Lord, uh, but their stories are very different from mine. Uh, I remember hating things that I used to love and now loving things that I used to hate before coming to Christ. I remember friendships that mutually uh, that, that mutually lost interest after coming to faith in Christ. I, I remember having friends before coming to know Jesus who we had nothing in common afterwards. And I remember making friends after coming to faith in Christ who I never would have befriended before. I remember seeing the world differently and people I knew seeing me differently having come to faith in Christ. And so for Paul, this stark contrast between who he used to be and who he was now is clear even in our passage that we're reading about. And so I want to take this a little at a time, but look at verse 20 through 22. It says, At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take the prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I love this. Isn't he the man? I love it. 
It says he baffled them. I mean, just, just imagine what it must have been like for those people. Uh, perhaps the Jewish, some of the Jewish people in the synagogues who had heard of this Christian movement, who had already set their mind against Jesus and, and, and were frustrated by the Christians in their midst, and they received word, the synagogue leaders, that Paul's coming. Don't worry. He's going to take care of them when he gets there. And here he comes. Oh, thank the Lord. Here comes Saul. He's going to take care of this Christian problem in our midst. And Saul comes into the synagogue, and instead of rounding up the Christians, he's proclaiming the same message. He is a proponent now of this Jesus. But isn't he the man? Isn't he the man who treated Jesus like a false prophet, like a false messiah? Isn't he the man who thought of the Christians as a threat to Israel and an affront to God? Isn't he the man who led the charge in the persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem? Isn't he the man who wasn't satisfied only with imprisoning Christians in Jerusalem, but was coming here to do the exact same thing? Isn't he the man? As we reflect on Paul's transformation, I can't help but wonder what kind of isn't he or isn't she might even be represented in this room. Isn't he the one who used to say that Christians are deluded? Isn't she the one who used to be mean to everyone? Isn't he the one that used to steal to support his drug addiction? Isn't she the one that used to neglect her kids? Aren't they the couple who always used to fight when they were in public? What happened? And I'm sure there are many other examples we could give of who we used to be in contrast to who we are now. And why is there a difference? It's because Jesus transforms. Encountering the Lord transforms. Paul encountered Jesus, and the one he used to speak against, he now preached in the synagogues as the Son of God. Paul was no longer who he used to be. He has been transformed. Continuing on in verse 23, it says, After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. I would have paid to see that. It's true. I'm sorry. That had to be funny from the outside looking in. But that's how desperate his situation was as he was trying to flee those who were trying to put him to death. And perhaps this is the grandest irony of all. As Paul is caught in this tension between who he used to be and who he is now, who he had become, his revolt is dead. His his role has been reversed. And what's being done to him is what he was in fact doing to others before. He was the zealous champion of God who would even employ violence to rid Israel of this Christian threat, this perceived affront to God. And now after realizing that he was wrong, after seeing the truth, he was now the target of those who saw themselves as the zealous champions of God who would even employ violence to rid Israel of this Christian threat, this perceived affront to God. Who he had become put him at odds with those who were like he used to be. And if we're honest, the other side is also true sometimes. Who we used to be sometimes impedes our new life as Christians among our sisters and brothers. It shouldn't, but oftentimes it does. I want you to see this in verse 26 in Paul's life. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, 
He tried to join the disciples. That's the believers there in Jerusalem. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Now, if you remember, when Paul was in Damascus, he stayed with the believers. Now, if you remember his story, when Ananias heard from God that he was supposed to go to this Saul of Tarsus, uh, who had become a Christian, he's like, um, Lord, you do know who we're talking about here, right? Um, but we see that Ananias was obedient to God, and, and, and you know, Saul came to faith in Christ, and he was spending time among the disciples there in Damascus, but now here he comes to Jerusalem, and he's seeking out the Christians, not to persecute them, but to join them. He's one of them, and they didn't want anything to do with him. Um, so, and the, and the text says they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was really a disciple. A few words about this. First, can you really blame them? Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's good that there's a little caution. A little caution was warranted, I'm sure. If you don't think so, you really don't understand the level of the persecution that the Christians faced under Paul. However, persisting in fear, persisting in disbelief is a problem. Not because, you know, of anything even particularly to Paul, but it doesn't show a trust in God. What do I mean by that? I don't mean a lack of trust in God's ability to protect Christians who believe, uh, because the Bible makes no such promise. The Bible doesn't promise to protect Christians from persecution. In fact, it promises that Christians will endure persecution. It does not promise, the Bible does not promise that God will protect you from losing your life for him. In fact, it says that many will lose their life for him, okay? So it's not about trusting God, that God is going to keep you safe from Paul. But the problem is that it lacks faith in God that he can reach even someone like Paul. And so the problem in persisting in fear and persisting in disbelief is that it demonstrates a lack of faith in God's ability to reach anyone, even Saul of Tarsus. Why should it shock them or us that God could redeem this man? And despite all the evil that Paul did, Jesus' atoning sacrifice is sufficient to cover every last sin of this man. And if God is forgiven, who are human beings to persist in unforgiveness? How can we hold things over people's heads that God has forgiven? Friends, every day there are people who come to faith in Christ, who are forgiven of their sin, who uh, enter into new life, who come to a church somewhere in the world, and who are shamed by fellow Christians over who they used to be. And we, as Belgrade Alliance Church, must never engage in such nonsense as that. This must never be a church that calls something dirty, which God has called clean. This must never be a church that condemns what God has redeemed. We must be people who believe in transformation. Paul was transformed. And if we belong to Christ, then we've been transformed, and we know what that is like. And we must expect that God will continue to transform lives as they encounter Jesus. This is who we serve. This is who God is. This is what God does. Our stories are all different. But if we've come to know Jesus, we have been transformed. 
verses 27 through 31, finishing up our text. It says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of, of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That's where his home was. That's where he came from. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. And so again, we have an example of God's power to redeem and God's ability and his power to work out his mission through his people. I want to spend the remaining time together talking about transformation. Not just Paul's, but ours. Transformation we perhaps have already experienced and the transformation that's supposed to continue in our lives as we continually encounter Jesus. Now there might be here some here today who don't recognize any kind of transformation in their own life. There might be some here today who had an initial experience of transformation, but not much has changed since that day. There might be some here today uh, who don't even know that we're supposed to experience any kind of transformation, and so life has always seemed the same and they haven't expected anything more. I think it's important to understand what the Bible talks about in regards to our transformation, and so there's three things I want to talk about today, and the first one is this, that all Christ followers experience transformation. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's dramatic, but all Christ followers experience transformation. Here's the reality of what takes place when we surrender our lives to Jesus, okay? We move from death to life, spiritual death to spiritual life. We were once cut off from the source of life, our God, and now we have been reconnected to him. We are born again. We are regenerated by the Spirit. These are the images we see in scripture. We are made new and moved from death to life. As a result of all this, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're completely forgiven and we no longer carry our guilt and shame. And that doesn't mean that Christians don't sometimes walk around holding on to it tightly, but it's been paid for and God wants us to let it go. We're not only reconciled to, to God as if you know, our relationships no longer just cut off, but we've actually been adopted as his sons and daughters, and he is always present with us in numerous ways, through his Holy Spirit, through Jesus as the head of the church, God being omniscient. He's always present with us. And so again, whether it was subtle or dramatic, if you have believed in the gospel and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, you have been transformed. And so the process has started for all of us who profess the name of Christ and so that, that brings up the second point. Transformation is initial, but it's also ongoing. When we come to faith in Christ, when we surrender to his lordship, when we believe the gospel, transformation takes place. Might be subtle, might be dramatic, but that initial transformation has taken place. But we are to be continually, ongoingly, if that's even a word, transformed by God. This was true for Paul, as it is for us. We see in verse 22 of our text today, it says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that 
Jesus is the Messiah. He grew more and more powerful. Why? By some kind of work of his own? No. By his transformation in the Lord, the Lord preparing him, molding him into who he's calling him to be. What happened? Did God not get it right the first time when he put his faith in Jesus? Did, did Paul unplug before the download was complete and so more had to take place afterwards? No. Transformation is initial and ongoing. And we grow in many ways throughout our Christian journey. And here's just a couple of them. We grow in our knowledge and appreciation of the Lord. I'm sorry, that moment when you first come to Jesus, there might be a lot of emotions. There might be a lot of zeal, but you don't have a lot of knowledge at that moment. We grow in that. As we study the scriptures, as we see God working in our lives, we are constantly growing in our knowledge and our appreciation of the Lord. We grow in our awareness of and experience with the spiritual gifts, the talents and skills that God has granted us for ministry. He's given us these things, but we become aware of them, more aware of them, actually exercise them, trust in them more. And so the ways in which God has equipped us for ministry and mission, we grow in these areas the longer we engage with the Lord. And we grow in our sanctification. That process of being set apart from the world, of being set apart unto God. That journey of being perfected throughout our lives so that when we reach the end, we are perfected. We are in the image of Christ. And so many scripture passages talk of this. I want to share one or two with you this morning. The first is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And Paul's just giving thanks for this church at Philippi. And here's what he says. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. And so this work that God began in them, this work that Paul is giving praise to God for because he's seeing the fruit of it, it's not done yet, but he knows God, this God of transformation, and he is faithful, and he will continue this work until the day when Christ returns. We see it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being, here's our word, transformed into, the into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so again, we are being transformed. And it's with ever-increasing glory. Now, it doesn't feel that way, right? Sometimes we look and it's like two steps forward, one step back. Or, uh, but we know, again, from looking at the passage before, that he who began a good work will, will carry it on to completion. We know that as we're being sanctified, as we're being transformed, he is working it out in us, and we are moving in a trajectory. We are moving toward perfection. We are moving to be more and more in the image of Christ. But here's the problem, here's the disconnect. Most Christians tend, to, at least the ones that I've engaged with, tend to think of this as a passive prospect, or maybe they don't think that way, but they act as if that was the case. I just go on autopilot and God will take care of whatever God's going to take care about. But here's the problem and here's my final point. 
God does have a role. And so do you. So do I. We all have a role in our transformation. God has his part, and we have our part in this transformation that's supposed to take place in our lives. Remember that God has, God has always been, he is, and he always will be the power behind that transformation. God does not expect you by your own steam, by your own will, by your own uh, abilities to pick yourself up by your bootstraps to be able to make yourself better. Now, there are some, some churches, some preachers, some things that are out there that make it sound like, you know, we have to get ourselves together and then God will approve of us. That's not biblical, okay? God is the power who transforms us. But we have a responsibility to surrender our will to him, to be willing for him to transform us, to cleanse us, to, when we fall down in sin, to confess, to repent, to stand back up, and to go again and again and again. We have a role to play in our own transformation. We see this also in several texts. Here's a couple. Romans 12, 2. Again, this is not, this is what's happening to you. It's, this is instruction to you because this is your responsibility. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. So in other words, it's not sit back and watch what God does. It's God's doing his thing. You need to do yours. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Again, instruction about what we are to do as we meet the Lord in this partnership of transformation. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That old self says this, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now, you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Man, I didn't catch it till right now how many times Paul is referring to this old self. We're looking at Paul's life here in Acts chapter 9, and we see this tension in this transitional passage, who he used to be and who he has become. And this instruction, we need to always keep this forefront in our minds, who we used to be and who we have become, having been transformed by the Lord. And our tendency here, while we're still in this process of sanctification, is to gravitate back toward these things we used to do, these things that are indicative of a life lived in the world and for the world, for self, and those stand opposed to what God has called us, how God has called us to live. And so we need to desire, our will needs to be set, that we have, set, we have closed the door to these things and we have embraced these things. This is what God calls us to. And again, we don't have the ability to just give those things up. Raise your hand if you've ever had a hard time breaking a habit, a bad habit in your life. Anybody who's not raising their hand is a liar. I'm just kidding. 
I've got too many to count. If you want to know what they are, ask my wife. We all have those things. How many, times, how many of you have ever gone on a diet and failed? Yes, I'll raise both my hands for that one. I don't get it. I somehow don't have the power to affect the change I want in my life. Why is that? I'm not as powerful as I'd like to think I am. Those things that God calls us to turn our back to, those things that God calls us to turn our, our face to, we don't have the power to do them, but he does. But our will has to be aligned with his. Only then do we start to see victory. And he will work it out in us. And you know what? He's present and sanctifying us in every victory and every failure. Raise your hand if you ever learned something from your hardest failures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I learn best when I fall fat, flat on my face. And you know what? God is present in all of that. And so, but we need to understand. He is a God who expects transformation, a God who affects transformation, and a God who asks us, who commands us to partner with him in our transformation, that we might honor him, not just in this relationship, but also before the watching world, that they might hear and respond to the gospel, and that our lives might, might demonstrate the impact of the gospel, the transformation of God, and what is possible in him. We serve a God of transformation. As we seek the Lord and further commit our lives to him, he will continue to transform us so that we might glorify him and serve him well in this world.